Welcome to the Beyond Your Money podcast with Mike Dukovich, financial advisor and retirement income certified professional with RBC Wealth Management. Join us as we share the tools and insight that can help you take control of your money and your life. Because we believe life's greatest returns are realized when you invest beyond your money. And welcome to the Beyond Your Money podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Mike Dukovich. I'm a financial advisor and retirement income certified professional with RBC Wealth Management. For those of you who have tuned in before, welcome back. But for anyone that is listening for the first time, this podcast is designed to help you take control. And we will do that by not only discussing a financial topic that is timely and relevant and applicable to your own wealth plan, but we will also discuss an important topic that goes beyond your money. And today's Beyond Your Money topic is a continuation from our discussion we were having in our last podcast about estate planning. I've invited attorney Jay Hagerman back to the show to dive into a specific estate planning tool, the trust. We're going to talk about what they are, why they are utilized, and who they make sense for. But before we get to Jay, let's talk about your money. Today, we're going to talk about one of the longstanding debates in the investment world, which is better, active or passive investments? Now, before we get into the pros and cons of each strategy, let's talk about them first from a 30,000-foot view. With an actively managed portfolio, a manager tries to beat the performance of a given benchmark or an index by using his or her own judgment in selecting individual securities and by deciding when to buy and sell them. Conversely, a passively managed portfolio attempts to simply match the benchmark or the index. And in the process, they try to minimize expenses that can reduce an investor's overall net return. So now that we have a very broad understanding of those strategies, let's talk about them each in a little more detail. And and we'll start with active investments. Proponents of active management believe that by picking the right investments, taking advantage of market trends or in attempting to manage risk, a skilled investment manager can generate returns that outperform a benchmark's index. For example, an active manager whose benchmark is the S&P 500 might attempt to earn better than market returns by overweighting certain industries or, or individual securities, allocating more to those sectors than the index does. Or a manager might try to control a portfolio's overall risk by temporarily increasing a percentage devoted to more conservative investments like cash or alternatives. One of the best examples I can give of an actively managed investment is a mutual fund. With an actively traded mutual fund, typically there's a manager or a group of managers. There are analysts, there are traders, there are people behind the scenes that are doing their thing to try and get that fund or that investment to outperform the benchmark index that they're competing against. And because there are people involved in this decision-making process, inherently, the fees inside of that investment are typically going to be a little bit higher. Now, proponents of actively managed investments tend to think that those fees are justified because if you have a good manager, a good management team, a good group of analysts and traders who have a process and a philosophy and an investment approach that they feel gives them a competitive advantage in the marketplace, they could potentially beat the index on average over time. Now, I will point out that there is no active manager out there that always beats their index year after year with 100% accuracy. However, proponents of actively managed investments 
feel that over time, a good manager's goal on average will be to beat their index and therefore those fees could be justified. Now, on the flip side with passive investing, advocates of this approach of these unmanaged passive investment vehicles, sometimes referred to as index funds, have long argued that the best way to capture overall market returns is to use low cost market tracking index investments. Now, this approach is based on the concept of what's called the efficient market, which states that because all investors have access to all of the necessary information about a company and securities, it is very difficult, if not impossible, to gain an advantage over any other investor. So as new information becomes available, market prices adjust in response to that new information and reflect a security's true value. That market efficiency, proponents say, means that reducing an investment's cost is the only key to improving net returns. One of the best examples I can give of a passively managed investment is an indexed ETF or an exchange traded fund. Rather than having an actively traded fund with a manager and a, or a team of managers and analysts and traders and, and that sort of team who are constantly trying to pick the best stocks or securities to outperform the benchmark that they're going against, a passively managed ETF simply buys the whole index. They want to simply capture the performance of the market because they think that the market is completely efficient and that it's nearly impossible for any person or team to have a competitive advantage year after year. So they don't try to beat the index. They just simply try to match it. However, in doing so, they try to minimize the costs. They think that by lowering their costs internally, they can therefore get a better return for their investors. Now, a lot of investors out there have their own idea as far as which way is better, active or passive. And a lot of them go that way 100% of the time. Personally, I think that both have a spot in a portfolio. And inherently in the portfolios that I'm managing, I usually have active right next to passive in that single portfolio. And the reason is this, throughout my investment selection process, my goal is to find managers that are well-positioned to consistently outperform the benchmark index that they're going against. I have a process in place where I whittle down the investment universe. And again, my goal is to find the managers that tend to do better over time. Now, you don't have those managers that beat their index more often than not in every sector of the market. And so therefore, in an area of the market where I don't have an actively managed portfolio that I like or that I am comfortable with, I will plug in a passive investment in that particular sleeve so that I can capture the exposure that I want with a lower cost product. Ultimately, I personally feel that it makes sense to pay the higher cost for active managers that I have conviction in, uh, managers that I feel are consistently well positioned to do better than the benchmark they're competing against. But I don't have that conviction. If I don't have that conviction, I'll simply use a passive product. And you can do that. You can have active and passive investments right next to each other, right in the same portfolio. So bottom line, there are merits to both active and passive investing. At the same time, each style has its flaws. So it's my opinion that it's reasonable and in many cases advisable to consider incorporating both strategies into a portfolio with a blended approach. Of course, each situation is unique. So before you make a decision about your investment strategies, it's always makes sense to consult your financial advisor. If you're not working with a financial advisor, feel free to reach out to me at my office. And with that, now let's talk about something that goes beyond your money. Today, we're going to continue our discussion from the last podcast, 
by talking about another very important estate planning tool, the trust. Trusts tend to be very misunderstood element of an estate plan. And many people think that trusts are simply for the ultra wealthy and that they create an unlimited slush fund for children and grandchildren. While that could be one form of a trust, it's certainly not the typical use for a trust. Trusts can be extremely useful tools that can help everyday individuals put guidelines in place so that their wishes are carried out in the event of death. In order to help us with this often misunderstood topic of trusts, I've invited attorney Jay Hagerman back to the show. Jay is the managing partner at Abernathy & Hagerman, located right here in the North Hills of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His law firm focuses only on wills, estates, trusts, and elder law. He's an active member of the Pennsylvania Bar Association and is a frequent lecturer on topics of probate and trust law for the Pennsylvania Bar. Jay, welcome back. Good to be back, Mike. Uh, can't wait to talk to you and your uh, your clients about, about the different aspects of trusts. Well, we appreciate you coming back. I know last time we had a discussion about the basic components of an estate plan. That would be wills, powers of attorney, and living wills. Uh, I think our listeners had a, received a great deal of information about those components. But we held out one particular uh, discussion on purpose because it, it's such a broad topic that it warranted a show in and of itself. There's no doubt about it. I mean, trusts are extremely important building blocks of the estate plan. It's a little bit beyond the basics, and that's why we're here. Good. Well, let's let's dive right in. Let's, uh, Jay, why don't you tell us, what is a trust? Yeah, so the common misconceptions, and you kind of hit it off perfectly on the introduction. Some of the issues with trusts, I mean, most people think that you have to be a Rockefeller, right, to have a trust. That's just not true. I mean, trusts are rule books that are very well defined, and uh, it's basically about just uh, getting your priorities on point in order to protect certain assets for a certain cause whether it be family or whether it be a charitable cause or whatnot. It's just about defining a rule book for a future situation. Basically putting your wishes on paper so that if something were to happen to you, whether it's in incapacity or death, your rules are there in place so that someone else doesn't have to. And, and it's such a more defined rule book. So there's a saying in life that less is more, but when it comes to the law, more is more. So if I can define, I mean, it's as simple as this. If I, uh, my wife tells me, you need to go to the store and buy a gallon of milk, right? So I know that I'm getting a gallon, but she didn't say if it's 2%, 1%, if it's, if it's a different type of brand. If I say you need to go to the store, buy a gallon of 2% Marburger milk or whatever, United Dairy, whatever it is, I know exactly what I'm getting. And that's exactly what trusts do. They define to a T the, the actuality of what needs to happen with my wishes. That's a great analogy. Well, let's uh, let's talk about you know the components of a trust. Who who are the relevant parties? I love that question, and this is very important to understand. There are basically three parties to every trust. Okay, there is the grantor. That's the person who's basically putting their assets into this trust or subjecting their stuff to the rules that they write. Then there is the trustee. Everyone's heard of that, right? It's like the executor of a will. You have to have a fiduciary who's in charge of the assets, the person who makes the rules. A lot of the times, and especially in these jurisdictions, the settlor and the trustee are the same person. And then there are the beneficiaries. Ultimately, the trustee has a fiduciary duty to the beneficiaries to uphold the rules for the benefit of the beneficiaries. Okay. And you mentioned a, a very important word. It's a hot button word in our industry, in the financial industry, uh, fiduciary. 
Yeah. Can you tell us what that means? Absolutely. It's Latin. So uh, <clears throat> you've heard of the Marine Corps, Semper Fi, Semper Fidelis. Fiduciary is the stem word of uh, Fidelis, which is, means faith. So Semper Fi means always faithful, which is the Marine Corps, of course, uh, a thing. But in any event, fiduciary means the highest duty of faith in the law. So a fiduciary has the highest duty of faith to whatever purpose they're serving at the time. And so, you know, executor of a will, trustee of a trust, of course, a fiduciary duty standard in, in financial realms means that you have the highest duty of faith to your clients. It's not what's suitable. It's what's the best for the client at all times. It's a higher, higher duty than most. So it's putting the client first. Every time. I mean, it's, it's not what's, what may be okay. It's the best. That's the highest standard. Yep. And if you were to break that code, if you were to go against your fiduciary obligation, what, yeah. what could that mean? Well, you're going to make a lot of my friends really happy when they sue you. The lawyers. <laughs> That's right. Got it. Yep. So it's not something you want to do. You, no. This is a very important issue. And, and if you have a fiduciary obligation, you have to follow it. Exactly. That's right. Jay, let's dive in. What are the various types of trusts? Great question. So basically, let's start from the very beginning. There are really two types of trusts. You have the inter vivos or living trust, which is the common phrase, and the testamentary. So a testamentary trust is the easiest to describe. It's a trust that's basically in a will. Uh, what you commonly see these, frankly, are as a younger couple just got married, had their first couple kids, and they don't want to go through the full-blown living trust plan. They just want something. If we both die, then this protection plan is there for our kids from a legal perspective, Right. So that's a testamentary trust. It's in a will. So once again, you have to go through probate if both spouses typically pass away. The inter vivos are living trust, and we have to go further through the weeds there. There are really two, uh, the revocable and irrevocable. And once again, and we'll, we'll dive a little bit into the more common irrevocable trusts, but, um, and there's like 35 different types, but revocable is pretty straightforward. What that is, it says, you know, my spouse and I have a, a game plan for us we want to avoid the probate process in whatever jurisdiction we're in. And uh, it's also a really good rule book for their incapacity. Okay. Because typically you have powers of attorney, which once again, that's the first podcast. But that's, that's, that's a game plan for your incapacity. The revocable trust is a better game plan because once again, you're going from an 8 to 10 page power of attorney to a 30 to 50 page revocable trust that talks about the settlor, the grantor's incapacity and death. Since it's revocable, it can be changed or amended at any time, which is awesome. However, irrevocable trusts are kind of where we get into the more the uh, the protection aspects and the uh, the harder planning and, and the better planning, frankly, in my, my opinion. So that's something we probably should talk about. So these trusts, whether it's revocable or irrevocable, they are created through the will. Is that right? Well, the testamentary trusts, well, the testamentary trusts are in the will. The irrevocable or revocable trusts are standalone living documents. So they are contemporaneously created as you're alive. Got it. And, and frankly, the, the, the logic is kind of uh, difficult. Whenever someone has a testamentary trust and they pass away, you know, it's an irrevocable trust by the nature of it because the settlor can't revoke it because they're dead. So they <laughs> come to the, the, this, this trust comes alive, so to speak, if someone were to pass. Oh, yes, in, in, in the testamentary capacity. Now, in the inter vivos trusts, whether they're irrevocable or revocable, they're already alive and they, they are, they're functioning as, a, as an entity, essentially, while, while the settlor grantor is still alive. So they are, that's why they're called living trusts because they are literally living contemporaneously with the, the, with the maker. 
the testamentary trusts only begin essentially whenever the settlor dies. Got it. And, and what would someone put into a living trust? That's a great question. So typically, let's go through the most common the most common asset that we talk about putting a tr- into a tr- trust, and all that means is, you know, retitling an asset in the name of the trust, subject to the rules of the document, is their house. So hypothetically, I see this all the time. Whenever someone wants to avoid probate on their primary residence, uh, two spouses sign a deed saying it goes to the, the Smith Family Trust or whatever it is. And whenever the Smiths pass away, that avoids probate on the document and it follows the rules of the trust. It gets even massive. And this is my favorite to talk about something called an asset protection trust. And what that really is in, in every jurisdiction is an irrevocable grantor trust. And this type of trust functions very well with getting rid of your creditors, predators, and nursing homes. So what I mean by that is this. If you're trying to protect your family residence from the personal injury attorneys or the bankruptcy lawyers or, frankly, the nursing home, if you're one of those 70% of Americans who are going to spend some time in a facility, whether it's rehab or long-term, what you do is you convey your primary residence to your irrevocable trust, your asset protection trust, while you're alive. You get through the look-back period, which is for Medicaid purposes, for however many years it is. In most jurisdictions, it's five years or 60 months. And whenever you do that, that sanitizes that asset. Whenever you guys, whenever you and your spouse both pass away or you personally pass away, that gives that asset to your beneficiaries without having to go through probate and without having any creditors, predators, or nursing homes attach back on and try to take that asset to pay their bills. So, you, so you're protecting the home, and that scenario right there mm-hmm. that you just described, you're protecting the home from the nursing home going back after it. Yep. And also, well, and also the, the, the entity, the government entity that's in charge of recapturing that value. So basically in 2003, without going too far into my, my nerddom, the government, the federal government enacted a law called the Deficit Reduction Act, or the DRA. Basically, you have so many exempt resources during your life, which is basically your house is your big one, right? But after you die, if that house goes through probate, we're going to sue your estate to capture that money back. So before your loved ones, your beneficiaries paid, we're taking that house back. Uh, and they're worth a value. But if you put into this irrevocable trust, right, it's protected after you get through the period. So that's that's what the, some of the value of these things these are. It is, is basically you're, you're playing by the government's rules all above board, but protecting your assets for your beneficiaries in the best and most efficient manner. Now, how are you actually, what is the process like as far as, let's just say I own my home currently. Yep. I get this trust created. It's ready to go. Sure. What's the actual process of me giving or gifting my home to the trust? How does that actually work? Yeah, great question. So what happens basically is you just sit down with an attorney like myself and um, we, we, we write the document up. So basically if you and your spouse own the home, which most people do, they have to just sign a deed over instead of you know Jane and John Smith to Jane and John Smith's trust. And uh, they sign the deed, it goes in there, and that starts the clock on this 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 time period, whatever jurisdiction you're in, you know, most it's 60 months or five years. So if you do this whenever you're in retirement age or 55 or whatever, this is normally, the likelihood of uh, you getting through that five-year period is pretty high. So that starts the clock, and then after five years, 
you own this trust. Once again, you're the trustees, so you're in control. You don't pay rent or anything else like that because you're in control, and you just live in your house. You pay the utility bills. I mean, it's, it's very much the same. The bottom line is the government just can't come back <laughs> after you die if you have ever have gone to a facility to, to claw back at it. Also, neither can the personal injury lawyers, and uh, neither can your creditors or predators. It, it's, it's a really powerful tool that most people just don't really use because they just don't know about it. It's not ignorance. It's just, you know, it, it's just they don't know, they don't know the, the rules. Sure. What, what else, you know, we talked about the home. Mm-hmm. What else could you actually put into this trust? Can you put other assets into that trust to, to help protect it from the nursing home example that we're using? So I'm going to answer your question in the most lawyerly way, and I'm going to tell you what you can't put in. Okay. Because everything else is in bounds. You can put cash in, right? So you, how do you do that? Well, you just retitle a bank account in the name of the trust. So instead of having, once again, John and Jane Smith, husband and wife on an account, or spouse and spouse, I should say, you just have it, the John and Jane Smith Trust. Simple as that. And you just sign the signature card. So any cash, CDs, money markets, you can have stocks, bonds, mutual funds, all that fun stuff. The one thing that you can't directly put into a quote-unquote trust or retitle an account is is any basically income tax deferred money because that would be a, a recognized tax consequence at the time. So you're talking about IRAs, 401ks. 403bs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, all those. You cannot have those retitled currently into the name of the trust. The fun thing, though, is if you really want to protect that, you can have the beneficiary of those accounts because most of the times they have beneficiary designations on them. They, the recipient can be the trust, which then protects it for the next generation through the trust. So once again, you, you can't put it in, quote, unquote, right now, but after you pass away, you can have the beneficiary or the recipient be the trust, and you still get that rule book, that protective aspect for the beneficiaries. So let me give you an example. Let's say that we have dad, and dad has a $500,000 401k. He retires and he rolls it to an IRA. So what happens then is dad has two kids. One of them, awesome, awesome kid. The other one, eh, you know, a little bit, little spendthrift, maybe he likes to spend money on nice, nice things, right? But he wants to go 50-50. What can happen is dad can have his IRA be paid to the trust after dad dies to go 50-50 between the kids and the trustee, who can be anybody, can then dole out the money from the IRA. And obviously it's a little more complicated with taxes, but can dole out the money subject to the terms of the trust. Subject to the terms that dad put in place. Dad's rule book. Exactly right. Yep. So it's not just you're you're not dumping two hundred fifty thousand dollars on each kid, one who's going to be responsible and who's irresponsible. You're not giving two hundred fifty thousand dollars to an irresponsible spendthrift person. You can have the money go into a trust, and the rule book that Dad writes with his lawyer basically can can run the roost on those those types of assets. And the trustee that Dad assigns is the one that's actually in charge of following Dad's rule book. Correct? Exactly right. That's it. You got to follow the game plan. So the kids just can't, you know, go and and uh, take money or assets out of the trust without that trustee actually doing it. That's right. Okay. So it's a great way of just putting handcuffs on on assets that Dad wants to have handcuffs on. I mean, sometimes not only that, but sometimes we have to protect ourselves from ourselves or protect our family, you know, from their own selves. Right. Sure. Jay, let's switch gears here. Let's talk about another type of trust. Let's talk about special needs trust. Right. Do, you, do you run into that a lot? Can you tell us what that is? 
Sure. So basically, if there's an individual that has some type of special needs and, and you, they have a disability determination from the Social Security Administration or that there's, there's a cognitive handicap, there, there's certain types of, of, of trusts that we can put into place that basically we can design these things to, to supplement that individual's life but not supplant any government benefits that they receive. So, so basically, when it comes to these types of, of benefits, most of them are federal, and they're administered through the different states. So if we have a, a, a federal benefit that's providing for medical insurance or uh, housing or food, we can't have a trust that directly pays for those needs. However, we want to maintain the quality of life and the standard of living and, and just a great phenomenal experience for those individuals who have disabilities and, and cognitive issues and stuff like that. But we just can't put money in their back pocket because then they are not eligible financially for these government benefits. Sure, it disqualifies them from an and, income perspective. Exactly. in resource, right, exactly. So what we want to do is we, want to we don't want to supplant these benefits. We want to supplement their lifestyle with these special needs trusts. And they have to be designed very specifically so that they're not going to throw these individuals off of their government benefits. So once again, trusts are a great way to supplement these individuals' lifestyle so that they're living the fullest capability that they possibly can without kicking them off of their their benefits. And same thing, uh, you can put just about anything into this type of trust or, or are there assets that are restricted as well? Yeah, once again, I mean, most of the times it, it deals with uh, the parent's inheritance. So once again, if two, two spouses have a boatload of money and if they just have a simple will and they dump it on, child they give them the quote unquote the bag of money at death with with a child that has a special needs issue that could really hinder that special needs child's life because they're giving them a bag of money which would mostly disqualify them in every jurisdiction for some type of benefit sure right so if they put it through this trust it kind of sanitizes that bag of money to you know supplement that lifestyle that person would that would need sure Let's talk about you. You said this word earlier, spendthrift. Yeah. Let's talk about spendthrift trusts. So spend spendthrift uh, folks are people that once again they they're not terribly great with money. I mean, maybe they just don't know how it works, or they don't. They're not a client of yours. <laughs> but hopefully know, not. Hopefully not. Right. But anyway, I mean, you can put a little bit of rules on individuals that have spending issues, or or maybe they just. And once again, you can say my loved one gets. $2,000, I'm just making this up, $2,000 a month for X amount of months after I pass away so that they can once again pay for whatever they need. So you have the big pot of money sitting in this lockbox, right, that the, that the child can't get at right away, but they still have a, a money to live on. So that's, that's the good part there. Other thing is this. I mean, when it comes to the spendthrift provisions, a lot of the times you see, I, I, I hate to say this, but, you know, we live in the 21st century now in, in drugs and alcohol. I mean, you know, you don't want your money going to fund an addiction. Simple as that. Of course. So, so basically, we have, we, we have the ability and trust to say, okay, my beneficiaries, I love my kids, but if they're addicted to drugs and alcohol, I don't want my money going down their throat or up their arm. So I'm going to pay for their rehab, but I'm not going to pay them cash outright so that they can go use it at the bar or wherever. So in any event, there's those type of, of provisions in these trusts, essentially, uh, that prohibit that type of activity. And frankly, they are responsible to the trustee, and the burden of proof is on 
the beneficiary. If you want your money, you have to be clean. And it's a sad thing to, to have to go through, but once again, it's, this is reality. I mean, we have to deal with reality. Sure. And that could be a, a pretty intimidating situation for a trustee who is normally, what, a person, a loved one, someone yep. that they, you know, that the person who puts a trust into place, someone that they they want to put into that position. What if what if a person doesn't want to be put into that position? Or if I have no one to leave that responsibility to? Right. So that, that's a great question. So there's always corporate trustees. So that you have banks or financial institutions uh, to have fiduciary advisors or, or fiduciary corporate trustees to to be the bad guy. The other thing that I always say is always lean on your lawyer. I mean, lawyers routinely get, <laughs> the, the, you know, the, the, the rough hat. So, I mean, honestly, if you want to uh, say, if you're a trustee for one of your loved ones who put these things into place and you don't want to be the bad guy because you want to have a good Christmas or Thanksgiving, you, know, you can say, well, you know what, I'd love to do this, but the lawyer says no. So there's a lot of options there when it comes to the corporate or for you know the fiduciary level there, or even the legal side. You can always pick a quote unquote bad guy, right? So someone that's not necessarily directly related to the family, right? You know, someone that's more of a professional capacity, maybe an unbiased third party type right. of situation. And that's that's very common. I mean, I I myself routinely advise, and I'm I'm routinely the scapegoat for <laughs> a lot of my trustees that just say. Uh, you know, I want to do this, Jimmy or Bobby, but uh, lawyer says no. Yep, and I'm fine with that. Yep, makes sense to have that second layer of protection, that second layer of responsibility That's in there. So common, right? Yep. Because otherwise, I can see the beneficiaries going to Uncle Bob or Uncle Stan and say, "Hey, listen, I need this money. Please send it to me through the trust." And if and if there's a an emotional connection or some sort of family connection that otherwise hazes their their thought could be difficult without that third-party unbiased trustee as well. Yep, and that's, that's exactly why we're here. Let's talk about uh, another type of trust, charitable trusts. Yeah. Do you run into those? Yeah, it, it's sadly, it's more uncommon than, than it used to be. But basically, charitable trusts are, are, are designed, there's a lot of different things you can do with these. So this is a, the 30,000-foot overview. Basically, you're putting some money away for a, a purpose that is benevolent. There are definite tax benefits for it. That could be a whole different show. But if you have a, a charitable inclination at some point, once again, it makes sense to really kind of lock a portion of your wealth or your estate up and really give it to uh, that institution. When that occurs, typically, as I said, there can be significant tax benefits for you. It depends on the type of donation and, and when that occurs, so I'm not going to get into the weeds on that. But, you know, once again, that's why you have to talk to your financial advisor, your attorney, and maybe even a CPA to, uh, to really go through that. But the charitable aspect is, is really important from just a, a benevolent side. And uh, it is less common nowadays than I used to see them, frankly. Sure. A lot of people, as I said in the beginning here, a lot of people have this misconception that you have to have a, a lot of money, need a trust or to have a trust created. Right. When should someone consider a trust? Is that a specific dollar amount? Is that a specific need or instance? Or when should someone consider a trust? This is probably my favorite question. It's like the Rockefellers versus the Flintstones, right? The answer is you don't have to be a Rockefeller in order to have a trust. You don't need a million dollars in the bank. I mean, honestly, all a trust is, is, as I said from the beginning, it's a rule book. And it's based on your priorities. So if you actually want to prioritize trying to leave a legacy for your loved ones or trying to protect assets from creditors, predators, nursing homes. If you just have, once again, an inclination to explore probate avoidance or just writing a better rule book for your future and your family's future, 
that's when you should consider a trust. All that, you know, once again, you don't have to live high on the hog. All you have to do is prioritize a better rule book than what a simple three to eight page will will write. Once again, those are functional, but they don't really protect anything. It's basically the difference between walk, go, going and buying an apple right at the grocery store and carrying the apple around in a grocery bag. If you fall over, if it rains, if it floods, if there's a fire, the grocery bags burn down and the apple's gone. But if you have a root cellar, like Dorothy, right, in The Wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. you have, if you have the root cellar, like they go down and the tornado comes and the tornado and, and there's a flood, there's a fire, there's a tornado, that apple is still down in the root cellar protected like a trust. And that's the functionality. It depends on really if you want to value that protective aspect. And there's no dollar amount. There's no high sign. It's just literally your uh, your priorities in life. Most lawyers would sit down with you for a free consultation to just literally talk about your life and your priorities. And basically tell you whether or not you need a trust or not. Not, not, not even need it. Just whether your priorities align with the ability for the different types of trusts. I sure. mean, that, that's all that it is. It's just conversation. And it's so simple to have. So let's say we, we've gone through this work, we've created trust, we've retitled assets appropriately. Is that just set it and forget it? Is that something that you really just never need to look at again? Or, or how often should you review your trust? Yeah, I mean, once again, these documents, they don't go bad overnight, but every, facts change, right? So a lot of people say, well, what, what, do you, um, what do you do every day? Well, I mean, every family is different. And also, I hate to say it, but, you know, if we're providing for Aunt Margie to be the trustee, and then, you know, I wrote this trust 10 years ago, and Aunt Margie's not around anymore, I have to like look at my batting order, right? Make sure, sure the lineup's still fresh. So once again, every family is different. Every family has their own benefits and burdens, and every fact pattern is different as well. So it always makes sense to, to kind of take a look at these things like every like, five to 10 years. And, and once again, it's important to create a relationship with the people that you work with. So create a relationship with your advisor, create a relationship with your attorney or your CPA or your tax person. Just create the relationship and then don't be afraid to, to get a refresher. It's as simple as that. Sure. Makes sense to always review these issues. Doesn't hurt. That's that's a point I like to make with my clients during our annual STEM meetings is we're always looking to see, make sure that the beneficiary designations are correct, make sure that the estate documents are up to date and that they're adequate. Life changes. You know, there's births, deaths, marriages, divorces, uh, job changes, relationships change, families change. And so it always makes sense to kind of review these documents when when those sort of things happen. And the law changes less, but I'll just tell you the one thing. Every time that a client walks into my office that has a pre-1995 healthcare power of attorney is getting a new one. Because HIPAA, which everyone knows, the Health the Health Insurance Portability Accountability Act, went into effect January 1st, 1996. So if anyone has a document for healthcare uh, that's pre-1995 or earlier, they're getting a new one because there's no HIPAA waiver. Sure. And, I mean, basically it's malpractice for me not to tell them that. So... Once again, law changes a lot slower than the fact patterns of families, but you have to you have to really create a relationship with your professionals to to make it work. Sure, that makes absolute sense. Let's talk about two. Uh, I'll, I'll call it my typical clients. Okay, mm-hmm. so the first one. Let's talk about the young professionals. Okay, that's one area of. Uh, it's one area that I work with quite a bit. That's a, a niche, I guess you could call it, within my practice. And, and let's just talk about a hypothetical situation. And you can tell me kind of if, if they needed a trust, what, what type of trust and what they might put into Sounds it. Great. But let's say we have a couple. They're in their early 40s. They have three young children. There's uh, some decent amount of assets in there. They have a home. They have 401ks, IRAs, you know, maybe a joint account uh, with, some, with some money in there, some investments in there. 
would a trust be something that they should consider? And if so, what would what would uh, that trust look like? Yeah. So I mean, once again, this is this is the full disclaimer here. This is this is my professional opinion, but this is not meant to be specific legal advice for any of the listeners here. But this is general points. In this hypothetical, what I would suggest is they probably would need to go to their attorney and work with their advisor and maybe take a look at a testamentary trust. They don't. They may not need a full-blown living trust, revocable or irrevocable yet, because once again, the kids are young. They may not have a whole bunch of money in the bank, but they have some, right? They're 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 40 years old. They're not a retirement age. They're not worried about the nursing home. So, but we also want to say, if these kids are young, if something happens to mom and dad and they get into an accident, and these kids are are minors, we also don't want to dump this bag of money on the minors whenever they turn the age of majority which in most states is 18. So whatever the wealth they inherit or these insurance policies or whatever they have, we don't want to dump these bags of money on these kids at 18 and then an 18-year-old goes out and does 18-year-old stuff. Right? Sure. So what we want to do is we kind of put this lockbox or this, this this rule book, that's the best, this rule book in place that says, okay, well, you know what? If mom and dad pass away in, in this tragic accident and these kids are going to inherit this wealth, there are certain rules. We have an adult who's a trustee or we have a corporate trustee, whoever that, whoever that may be, and the rule book says, well, you know, we want them to go to school. So we're going to pay for their health, education, maintenance, and support. We have these standards in place and say, well, you know, we'll pay for your education. We'll pay for your medical bills. We'll pay for any unforeseen expenses. And, you know, maintenance and support is basically quality of life and standard of living. But we're not going to just dump a bag of money on you at 18. We're not giving you to go buy your Lamborghini. That's ridiculous. If you need a car to get back and forth to work, we'll get you like a Honda. <laughs> sure. <laughs> that's the type of stuff that we're talking about. And that's that's a really reasonable aspect there. And, and in that situation, I've seen this before. The parents, as they're creating the trust with their with their attorney, they're putting the language in place. They can also put in special provisions if, if you know, mom and dad had a special interest in making sure that they paid for weddings or, yep. or buy that first car yep. or study abroad or something like that. They can write that into, into the trust. Not only, not only that, my favorite, my favorite thing is this, especially if you're, if you're similar to that fact pattern, we know that you love your kids. But you may not like who your kids pick to marry. Sure. And that's that's the, the crazy thing, right? So if you have a son or a daughter that you really care about and you trust their judgment, but you know, they fall in love. Love is blind, right? Maybe you want your money to go to your kids or your grandkids, but you don't want it to go to that spouse because for whatever reason, you don't like them. Or you know what? They have their own parents. Or it could be a future spouse, right? Exactly. That you don't know. Exactly. And you can, once again, this rule book of a trust says... I don't necessarily have to have my child's spouse inherit anything from me, uh, which is actually very common. And it's not unfeeling. It's just very common because, once again, they have their own parents. They have their own And you don't even know who they are at some point right now. So that's that's very common. <laughs> now, in that same scenario, in that's the same hypothetical, could you have a stipulation in there that at a certain age the beneficiary actually takes ownership over the account or, or perhaps becomes a trustee themselves Absolutely. of the account? Yeah. I mean, once again, the, the rule book can be, I always say to my clients, if you can imagine it, I can write it. So it's really kind of a, a, a blank tablet as to how we're going to author this rule book. But yeah, at a certain age, I mean, once again, not 18, but maybe if your kid's 30, 35, you raise them right and they're going to be fine. They get ownership of their bag of money. And you know, they can be a co-trustee of their own sub-trust. I mean, there's a lot of different aspects you can have. The permutations are endless. If you can imagine it, most lawyers can write it. But the bottom line is there's just 
it's, it's the ability to really have that intuitive process to protect and have the initiative to just think about how your legacy is going to live beyond you. Sure. And, and I guess the, the, the key point here is there's so many different ways that you can do this, so many different avenues that you can take. And to your point, you can, you, if you can think it, we can write it kind That's of thing. Pretty right? much. Yeah. I'm, and so uh, it's very important to have that discussion with your professionals, with your attorneys, with your financial advisors to make sure that here are my wishes. Now, how do I get there? And get creative with it. Yeah, exactly. You know, sure. if, if you want certain provisions and, and also, I mean, if there, there's a very law school case back in the day that says, you know, I'll, I'll give all this money to my loved one if they do this, this, and this. Uh, sometimes that can be illegal. It's like Brewster's Millions, right? Mm. That, that movie back in the day. But a lot of times, I mean, families have certain priorities and they just want the best for their loved ones and their legacy. And, and, and they're not going to impose super crazy restrictions on these these things. But the bottom line is they still want to protect it. So the most important takeaway of this is make sure that you have a legitimate candid conversation with your professionals so that you can prioritize your legacy. Sure. Let's, uh, let's switch gears into one more hypothetical. We're running out of time here, but let's make sure that we address this one. Let's talk about the retiree. Let's say they have quite a bit of money. Kids are grown, successful. They don't necessarily need it. Maybe they want to leave it to their grandchildren or they want to protect it from a nursing home. That's something that's definitely on the top of their mind. And, and um, w- would that be a, a good candidate for, for that's a trust? My, that's my favorite candidate for a trust, right? Okay. So the, the best candidate would be that exact fact pattern. So two spouses, kids are generally grown, Maybe have some grandkids, maybe some on the way. And you know what? Father time gets us all, right? So what we want to do is we want to prioritize our legacy in a sense that whenever the creditors and predators and nursing homes come a-calling, we don't want to lose all of our hard-earned estate, our hardened legacy to life. So we're going to call up an attorney and we're going to try to put our assets into a certain type of irrevocable asset protection trust and whatever jurisdiction that may look like things are a little different but this irrevocable trust has to be a certain way and we're not going to give everything up right now certainly not control but we are going to just prioritize this and once again in most jurisdictions um, we have to we have we have a clock we got to start so once again in most jurisdictions it's 60 months or five years so if we put our house for instance we have a two hundred fifty thousand dollar house and we put that in day one we got to get through the woods five years well five years is a long time whenever you're a little older so uh we're going to start the clock on those assets now we're going to protect that for the future generation we're going to instill our legacy and once again we're going to write our own rule book and we're not we're not playing by the government's rule book we're not losing our house to the nursing home or any other personal injury lawyers or anything else that comes by, that's the ideal time. Whenever you whenever you have a conversation with your tax guy or your financial advisor about retirement and Social Security, you better go see an attorney about your legacy for your estate. It's just the teamwork makes a dream work, right? Sure. And that's the key. I think going back to our, our, our last discussion in our last podcast about just your basic estate documents, and now certainly as we get it more in-depth on this component with the trusts, the key with estate planning is you're putting your roles, your wishes, your desires, your your guidelines in place so that, God forbid, if something were to happen to you, your wishes are carried out. Because otherwise, if you don't, there there is another rule book out there that, that the government has, right? And it's just, it could be something different. And it's probably not yours. Right. So, <laughs> so bottom line, put put the preparations, put the time in so that your wishes are carried out. Um, Jay, we have time for one last question. 
This is something that I get a lot. I'm sure you probably get it as well. Maybe not directly. The question that comes up, can I just do that online? Shouldn't I just, you know, <laughs> go online to one of those online legal services, yeah. right, to get that stuff done? Is that something that, uh, well, let me ask you, what, what would you say to that? Well, I mean, the bottom line, it's as simple as this. I mean, you get what you pay for sometimes. And uh, certainly the online stuff, there's some, there's, there's not much quality there. It's, it's, as I said, every family is different. Every fact pattern is different. I've been doing this for at least a decade, and I'm, I'm just going to tell you, I, I don't do the same thing twice. I mean, even if I write two trusts that a family has a different fact pattern or a similar fact pattern, it's still a little bit different. So sure, you can go online and, and kind of do it the cheap way. But once again, I'll just, I'll just be honest with your listeners. I spend so much time and I make more money fixing problems from online internet legal services than actually doing it the right way professionally and, and obviously it seems a little self-serving because I mean I'm, I'm obviously in it I'm in business for myself but the bottom line is do it once do it right measure twice cut once type thing right if you if you're gonna go online and you're gonna try to try to take a little bit cheap and quick way well then whenever it blows up there's going to be a, a lot of prices to pay sure it's gonna cost you more in the long run i can't tell you how many times you know and i'm you know internet services that have jurisdictions in california and in the laws there are just different than where i practice and a lot of these things are cited there and they're just just not the law here sure so i have i have clients and once again we're in pennsylvania so i'll just say it pennsylvania law is different than california law that's just intuitive every state has their own different type of law so when i get these these clients that buy online services for with California jurisdictions, and I say, well, this doesn't apply, this doesn't apply, this doesn't apply. They're going to end up paying me more than if they just came to me in the first place and said, Jay, just do this. Sure. So <laughs> I get it. And I knew that was the answer. That was yeah. a loaded question, yeah. but it does come up in conversation. Why can't I just do this online? It's cheaper. Well, you know, you get what you pay for. And well, that's really anything in I, life. I, I say three things. You know, there, there's cheap, quick, and good. Pick two. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I'll let your listeners stew on that. Yeah. Cheap, quick, and good. Pick two. Good. Well, Jay, that's about all the time we have. I really appreciate it. Before we end here, why don't you tell the listeners one more time how they can engage with you and your practice in case they have questions or if they know someone that might benefit from from your guidance. Absolutely. I'd love to talk to any of your listeners. And, and I'm located in North Hills of Pittsburgh. Our phone number is 412-486-6624. Once again, 412-486-6624. My email address, and, and please email me if you have any questions. I, I just love talking to people. If you can't tell that, it's JRH, my initials, JRH at A dash H dot LAW. So that's A hyphen H dot law. It, in dot law, there's no dot com. Dot law is a new uh, URL just for lawyers. So JRH at A hyphen H dot law. Thanks, Jay. That's great. Uh, again, if we've learned anything from today's discussion and our last one about wills, powers of attorney, and living will, is that there's no one clear cut answer as to whether or not an estate plan, or even a trust is appropriate for you. That decision is dependent on a number of very specific and very personal factors that only you know the answers to. And when you're making these types of decisions, it's critical that you consult with professionals that are qualified to help. And that's exactly the same when you're dealing with your personal wealth plan. There are so many components to a wealth plan and so many different products and investments and strategies that are out there that it's simply in your best interest to engage with a financial advisor before trying to do it on your own. That said, if you or a loved one need some help or guidance with regards to your own personal wealth plan, or if you're simply interested in learning more about my practice, 
please reach out by calling 724-933-4446. Or you can email me directly at michael.dukovich at rbc.com. And that's D-U-K-O-V-I-C-H. Or by visiting my website at michaeldukovich.com. And on my website, you'll find tons of valuable information on a wide range of financial topics because, after all, my goal is to educate, my goal is to inform, and my goal is to be top of mind for if and when questions come up down the line. I'm looking to work with people that understand that you shouldn't be doing this alone, people who value the plan, and people that recognize that life's greatest returns are only realized when you invest beyond your money. So remember, it's your money, it's your life. Take control. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Your Money podcast with financial advisor, Mike Dukovich. Make sure you click the subscribe button now so you will be notified when new podcasts are released. If you want to know more about working with Mike, please call 724-933-4446 or visit michaeldukovich.com. It's your money. It's your life. Take control. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of RBC Wealth Management. All opinions and estimates constitute the speaker's judgment as of the date of this recording and are subject to change without notice and are provided in good faith but without legal responsibility. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial services provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. RBC Wealth Management does not provide tax or legal advice. All decisions regarding the tax or legal implications of your investment should be made in connection with your independent tax or legal advisor. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. It is not possible to invest directly in an index. Investment and insurance products offered through RBC Wealth Management are not insured by the FDIC or any other federal government agency, are not deposits or other obligations of or guaranteed by a bank or any bank affiliate, and are subject to investment risks, including the possible loss of the principal amount invested. RBC Wealth Management is a division of RBC Capital Markets, LLC, member NYSE, FINRA, and SIPC.